The clientele is changing dramatically. The workforce is not. The administration has decided to empower the same people, structures, and systems that caused harm to people of color in the first place. Knowing that they might experience trauma as a professional. We do hear some really specific examples of racism in the schools. Is, is, is this an emergency? This is not going to be easy. If you think the people that have made change didn't cry at night, didn't feel lonely, identify, ostracized, that's not true. Change doesn't happen without a little bit of pain. Plant those seeds and become those teacher encouragers. If you love this profession, be a teacher encourager. I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. Teach Plus Rhode Island. And I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. I'm a Teach Plus Policy Fellow. I'm from Teach Plus Rhode Island. Great. So my name is Neil Steinberg. I have the honor and privilege of being the president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation. I have been in Rhode Island uh, for 45 years. I graduated from Brown University. I went to work for a little bank in Rhode Island that many people remember called Industrial National Bank <clears throat> in a building now affectionately referred to as the Superman building. And I was there for 25 years plus uh, Industrial National Bank became a very large bank. Fleet Bank, and I ultimately became president and CEO of Fleet Bank in Rhode Island. Um, I left there in 2004. I went to work after it, Fleet had been acquired by Bank of America. I decided to try something differently. I went back to work at my alma mater, Brown University, and I was vice president for development and headed a $1.4 billion fundraising campaign from 2004 to 2008, at which time I came and became um, the CEO, the president CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation. So I've been here a little over 12 years. Um, the Rhode Island Foundation is the state's community foundation. There are several, uh, seven, 800 community foundations throughout the country. They are place-based, regional-based, either city or uh, county or state. We are one of the oldest and one of the largest. So we started in 1916 and we're about the 20th largest in, in the country. Community foundations are what they say. We are here to serve and be of, for, and part of the Rhode Island community. Our mission is to be a proactive philanthropic and community leader dedicated to meeting the needs of all of the people of Rhode Island and I underscore uh, all people. Uh, we are the largest funder to the nonprofit sector by uh, a long shot, which we take very seriously. Although I, I wish there were other larger funders than us in, in the state, but that is the reality of Rhode Island. And <clears throat> we do a number of things. We raise money from various and, and very generous donors. In 2019, we raised $46 million uh, from families and individuals and companies. We gave out $57 million in grants, two thirds of that directed by the donors, a third of that discretionary to our staff here that gives out competitive grants to the nonprofits. Uh, we invest a very large endowment. We are an endowment model, which means that our donors all have funds here that build for the long term pretty much. Endowment at the end of the year was a, a, about a billion dollars. It's down a little but in the first quarter and over the long term will come back. Um, we have an eight and a half percent return over 25 years. So we kind of stay the course that way. Our priorities 
in funding are the priorities of the state of Rhode Island. So it's economic security, it's pre-K through 12 education, and it's health and healthcare. We also support the arts, the environment, basic human services and needs and housing and food and all of those uh, through our grant making. And we also take very seriously our position as a civic leader. So we started that a decade ago and really have come to the forefront of leading uh, with, leading for uh, different initiatives within those priorities. Uh, the one we're going to talk about today specifically is on the education side. So by raising money, by providing funding to organizations, and by taking leadership positions and convening positions, uh, we're able to move the positive agenda for the state of Rhode Island uh, forward. So that's the background. About almost two years ago now, as we were doing our education work, and, and we studied more and more our neighbors next door in Massachusetts, that, and all of this was pre-COVID, and I'll bring us up to date, but it was pre-COVID, but we did this obviously, was looking at the fact that in Massachusetts that arguably had the best results in the country, not perfect, but the best results, uh, one of the keys to their success, the primary key to their success, was that they stayed the course over the long term. They started back in 1993. They put in place various changes. They, they started the MCAS test that we now duplicate as the RICAS test. And through different administrations, through different leadership, through different political parties, they stayed the course. We historically have not stayed the course. Every three, four years, we change testing, we change leadership, we change flavors of the moment um, that, that are frustrating to students, they're frustrating to educators, they're frustrating to parents, and uh, resulted in uh, achievement gaps that were significant and are significant. In comparison with Massachusetts, when we looked at the RICAS tests that we took for the first time, um, I think it was widely publicized that if Rhode Island had been a district in Massachusetts, we would have been in the bottom 10%. So we did not compare well. On the other hand, the results from taking the RICAS test were not that dissimilar than when Massachusetts did it 20 plus years ago for the first time. So we know there's a trajectory, but we know there's a need to stay the course. So what we did here was because we're here for the long term, we're here beyond uh, the terms of elected officials, we're here with the community. Um, we put out kind of a call, uh, I did an op-ed in I think it was the fall of 2018 that we needed to do long-term planning. And as an aside, we included health and healthcare in that, which we also did. And so we decided uh, when we got support, people said, gee, that sounds good. Um, but there weren't a lot of people stepping up, <clears throat> excuse me, to lead it. So we decided that we would do what we know how to do and convene senior folks, convene people from around the sector and develop uh, with the state and for the state a plan. So that's what we did. In the late fall of 2018, we got together a very, very uh, experienced group of people who are in the education field, who are in the academic university field, who are in the business field uh, with the leadership, the uh, Commissioner of Education and the Chair of Board of Education. So we did this with government, but no elected officials participating because we knew we would present to them later. So it was the appointed folks. And we got together a group of 25 to 30 people that met monthly. And it was the heads of the unions, it was the heads of the Association for uh, 
superintendents and the school committees, uh, the principals, it was the deans of the education schools, as I said, representation from the business community, uh, some from the uh, charter school community, from the philanthropic community. And the report that was put out that I'll talk about at the end lists all of these people. So there's complete transparency on this. Every person that participated in that group is listed as this long-term planning committee. Importantly, every person that was part of that group signed, we have their signature endorsing this plan. What we heard in the beginning, and as I noted uh, at the top of this that I've been around a long time is, we've had too many 150 page plans in this state that become shelf documents. Going back to the greenhouse compact in the middle eighties, I have it in my drawer. Wonderfully smart work, wonderfully planned work, not implemented often, and again, put on the shelf. So that was what we set out is not to do that. So this report that was published that I think you have a copy of and that we will tell people how they can read is 21 pages. And it is not sitting on a desk. It's not sitting on a shelf. It will be put into action. But it was a classic strategic planning exercise, long-term vision, and the goal was 10 years out, to look 10 years out. So when we got this group together, we had ground rules and the two primary ground rules that we enforced with this group, very experienced people, were two things. One was leave your stripes at the door. And what that means is to be an advocate for the students in Rhode Island, the educators in Rhode Island broadly, not just for the sector or section or special interest group that you represent. And the other was to think long-term. So we know there are challenges in the schools today, whether it's supplies, whether it's the facilities, whether it's some short-term curriculum needs. Our goal though was to look down the road. Where do we want education to be in 10 years? What's the vision? What are the strategies? Publicize it, get it endorsed and go out there and then start to implement it. And that's why it is named Charter Course, Stay the Course. It is Rhode Island's path to a world-class public education system. So that's what we did. And we worked and we negotiated and we asked people to sign on if they agreed with 80%. Nobody these days agrees with 100% of anything. It is extremely polarized. And we knew that locally we were better than that and that we could get people on board. So what we did was we put this report together. It culminated in December of 19, uh, on December 19th of 2019, where we had a big event, 350 people over at the convention center called Make It Happen, World-Class Public Education for Rhode Island. We had 350 people from across the state for this one day event, students, parents, educators, business community leaders, other interested stakeholders. We had breakouts, we had brainstorming around these strategies. We presented at the end to a panel that was the governor, the commissioner, Senate president, and the chair of the House Education Committee. And that was the springboard to then publishing this. So this report that anybody who hears this, anybody who's interested can read the full report. It is on our web page, uh, rifoundation.org backslash ed in Rhode Island, ed in RI. So you go to our website, you can find it, or somebody could just email me 
nsteinberg at rifoundation.org and I'll get it to you. But what we did, and it was groundbreaking, we came up with a vision that everybody signed up for. And the vision, again, for 10 years from now is that Rhode Island's world-class public education system prepares all students to succeed in life and contribute productively to the community. We got pushback from people. What does it mean, world-class public education? Well, the truth is, we know what world-class public education is. It is published. There are benchmarks for world-class. Massachusetts, benchmarks against Singapore and Hong Kong. We do middle tier states across the country when we benchmark. We need to prepare our students and all students. There was a huge element of equity that was throughout this report. Our achievement gaps are terrible. We've had the highest Latino achievement gap in the country for many years. We need to provide this opportunity to all students. And so what we said was to equitably and urgently deliver on this vision, we need to put students at the center we need to respect, enable, and empower and value teaching. We need to serve these students who have been left behind and close these achievement and opportunity gaps. We need to develop relevant learning so students are prepared for the future. We need to engage families, ever so important, that are doing a great job now with the remote learning. We need to leverage the expertise of community partners in support of all Rhode Islanders. This is not just teachers in the classroom, it's not just the parents, it's all of us. This is the most important thing that we have for the future of the state, in my opinion. We need to distribute leadership and decision-making. We need to hold adults accountable for the student learning, and we need to provide sufficient resources and distribute them equitably and align policy structures and supports that are best for both the students and the teachers. And then most importantly, set ambitious statewide standards, high expectations, and stay the course. I really believe that this is a special and unique moment in time for education in Rhode Island. Many things have happened in the last year that prompt me to say that. Legislation was passed last year to mirror Massachusetts in having site-based management and curriculum reform. We had a bond that was passed over a year ago. I think it was $250 billion. $250 million, sorry, $250 million. I'm thinking all the federal money that's coming out now um, to fix up the schools throughout the state. We have a new commissioner. She's not that new anymore, Angelica Infante Green, dynamic, uh, decisive, with great leadership skills who will take us forward. The governor's commitment on education, the legislature's commitment on education, the uh, taking responsibility for our biggest challenge and our biggest city, the Providence school system, by taking over the Providence school system, and then doing this 10-year plan. We have never had a moment in time in my time here in Rhode Island where all of these things have come together. So we really feel that it's the time. Prior to the virus coming out, we got many endorsements of this plan. We presented it to the House of Representatives and got their endorsement. We presented it to the State Senate, their endorsement, the uh, Board of Elementary and, and Secondary Education um, has uh, endorsed it. The governor has endorsed it. We have over 20 business groups from around the state. Most important that the business community is behind this, that has endorsed this plan. 
And as I said, and I'm going to repeat again the vision, Rhode Island's world-class public education system prepares all students to succeed in life and contribute productively to the community over 10 years. We had four priorities. The first one is high standards. This is our moonshot. This is our Olympic quest. We need to create and build and implement world-class pre-K to 12 education, a system that is rooted in rigorous standards, and we can do this align the curriculum and the instruction, social and emotional learning, and promote multilingualism throughout this. And within each of these four priorities that I'm gonna note right now, we have underneath it strategies and su suggested next steps. Second priority is educator support. We need to invest more in the recruitment, preparation, and professional development of a diverse network of excellent educators, teachers, support professionals, uh, all levels, and apply the knowledge, skills, and dispositions that a professional educator needs to deliver in the classroom. The third priority is investments. And what we mean by that is commit to meaningful and sustained investments in public education that promote excellence and distribute the resources equitably based on student, school, and community needs. This is gonna be challenging. Our budgets are gonna be challenging. This needs to be at the top. And then the fourth one is clear governance. To have coherent and effective governance structures with clear roles and responsibilities at all levels. The principals need to be in charge of their buildings. District and school levels have to be accountable to students, families, educators, and policymakers. We need to have a shared understanding with all of this of metrics and terms that we're gonna to use to go forward. The commissioner has agreed as she was part of this preparation to use this 10 year plan for the new five year strategic plan that the Rhode Island Department of Education will be working on. This committee will morph over time into an advisory committee for the commissioner, for the Rhode Island Department of Education, or the council, and stay intact with the next person up. So if somebody leaves an association, the next person comes up. We need to have diverse representation. We need to have equity. We need to continue to dialogue out in the community about this. So now we come into this very unfortunate time and the Rhode Island Foundation is at the forefront of raising money, distributing money for nonprofits to serve the growing number of people in need as a result of COVID-19. Our leaders are doing fantastic jobs of uh, being flexible, of looking at both short-term and intermediate term, how do we get ourselves out of this? And I would suggest that this plan, and it was just announced this morning that schools will be closed for the rest of the year. Hopefully we will be able to gear up for whatever it looks like in September. Hopefully the best of distance learning can be continued. The shortcomings we can deal with, we can get back on this long-term course and staying the course and use this plan, galvanize around this, inspire and educate people more and more about the needs and use this plan to then take us to the next level, to get beyond the short-term and intermediate impact and use this as our guidepost to what, again, I would suggest and strongly endorse 
is the most important thing we can do in Rhode Island. We need to have an educated body of people that live in Rhode Island that could decide on the future of Rhode Island. We need an educated body to supply our employers. We need an educated body to attract new employers. And I think that over time, we can have among the top education in the United States. I think there is a commitment by many people who worked on this. And I think, again, we need to go back to the basics of this. Chart a course, stay the course, not change. Have the guts, have the fortitude to keep going, to make the investments, to make the commitment, to do the organizational work that we need to and support every one of our students, no matter where they live, no matter what grade they're in, no matter what their skill level is, and to support every educator that is in the schools that is doing this work with and for our students. My name is Melinda Lopez. I came to Rhode Island from New York City to attend Brown University. I have been an educator my entire career, and I currently work for the Highlander Institute as an educational strategy specialist. I am also adjunct instructor at Rhode Island College, where I support their early childhood program. I am the co-director of the Rhode Island Latina Leadership Institute, which encourages civic engagement among Latinas in our communities. And I am currently a candidate for Rhode Island State Representative for District 43, which is in Johnston. Um, when I decided to run for state representative, it was really out of a need to address what I feel is missing in my community. We have a small community here in Johnston. Our state, current state representative has held the seat for quite a while. Most people that I speak to in the community do not feel like their perspectives issues, needs, goals are represented when it comes to our state legislator. legislature. I really thought long and hard about what I could bring to my community if elected, and I landed on the fact that I think I'm an excellent um, listener and very responsive to the people that I talk to in my daily uh, roles, and I felt like that would be an asset for the role of state representative. Um, I have developed a, a hashtag, um, you might have seen it, called Listen, Learn, Lead. It really sort of defines my candidacy because I feel as though the more I listen to the people in our community, the more I'm able to learn about trends, needs, um, issues that need to be elevated at the state house that haven't been elevated, and with those things in mind, I would then be able to lead my community and make sure that they're getting what they need. And I don't feel that that has happened in the past 10 to 14 years um, that the current representative has held the seat. And most people that I speak to uh, only hear from her when it's time for the election. And that is not the job. The job is not to run for office. The job is to hold the seat and be responsive to your community. And I hope that I will be able to do that um, when elected in the fall. Sure. I think two things um, that I think about in general. I think in general, one of the things that's important to me is um, cultivating more teachers. And our profession is one that is often uh, looked down upon in the community. Um, children are not encouraged to be teachers. 
when you're in high schools, that is not a profession that many students name. Um, part of that is our responsibility in that, you know, we have to be mindful of how we represent our profession. Um, we have to be mindful about what we say about our income. Um, many students think that teachers don't make money and that it's too hard of a job. And I think that spending more time um, investing in a pipeline so that high school students see the benefits of becoming teachers, um, so that colleges are appropriately educating candidates who want to be teachers in a way that gives respect to the profession and honors what we all know it can be, as opposed to focusing on what tends to get more media coverage. The other thing I think is very important, and I, I, I started to feel like this was an impossible task until recently, is the importance of smaller class sizes. So I live in Johnston. Most people don't think about Johnston as a community that needs any extra supports when it comes to education. It kind of flies under the radar. Um, and as a state representative, I feel as though Johnston's education system needs to be elevated because we have some, some glaring needs. Uh, one of them is class size, and I think that that's true in many districts. So when we think about COVID-19 and the response and how are we going to open schools, that's one of the things I keep hearing about, that we need to have smaller class sizes in terms of social distancing. And I think that that might be a sort of a, a welcome gift that may come out of this because most teachers that I speak to um, when I was in the classroom and now feel very strongly that their class sizes are too large and feel like that's an insurmountable task. And I'm wondering if this pandemic is, as we respond to how to open schools, providing smaller class sizes might actually be a gift that we get from it. Um, I'm super hopeful about that. Listening to the commissioner speak earlier this week and today, she mentioned those two things again. The governor has mentioned them. So I really hope that the smaller class size does become um, elevated as the key to opening schools because we can do so much more for the kids in front of us when we're not overwhelmed by the number. And I know that in Johnston, when I moved here about 10 years ago, I was surprised at how large the classes were, both at the elementary, the middle, and the high school. So I'm really hopeful that that is something that comes out of this. We're going to need more teachers if they want that to happen. I completely agree. And I feel like that goes back to the first thing I brought up, right? Like we need more teachers graduating um, excuse me, we need more people graduating who want to become teachers and who are prepared for what teaching is and can be. I don't know how they're going to pull it off for September, but they keep mentioning it. They have mentioned it this week several times. So it clearly is um, something that they recognize needs to happen. I've heard that it might be through staggered schedules that maybe some students go into schools some days while others are doing distance learning at home and then it flips. That of course comes with a myriad of other issues, but they're definitely, they definitely have to think outside the box like we've all had to do during this. So it'll be interesting to see where that lands. Can you talk a little bit about student-centered learning since you're part of the Highlander Institute? Oh, 100%. I feel as though Another thing that this pandemic has done for us is made us realize if we could sort of look into the windows of all the students in their homes, 
trying to adjust or adapt to distance learning, we are seeing that there are students who can function very well in this atmosphere that are self-directed, that have been given the skills and the opportunities and the resources to sort of be their own guides and only reach out to the teacher um, in various ways as needed. And there's also students right now who are on the opposite end of that, who are struggling at every step. And then there's students in the middle that perhaps are able to do more independently, are able to engage in projects or self-directed learning that their teachers are, are putting through on platforms um, and maybe need teacher supports at different times. And I think that that is also true in our classrooms, except that we're sort of taught to teach to the middle. And I know because of your background, you know, you and I both come from the cloth of people who know that that doesn't work and that we have to address the needs of diverse learners. And one way to do that is to make our learning more student-centered when we're in the building. And I think that one thing, I'm one of the people who answers the phone for the Rhode Island Parent Helpline that Ride and Highlander Institute are making available right now. And as I field questions from parents, grandparents, students sometimes, it is very clear to me that there are students thriving in this way of teaching because they like the fact that they are in charge and their teachers and their schools and their homes have afforded them the opportunity to sort of feel truly at the center of their own learning. And then there are families that are struggling immensely to know how to support their student, how to answer their child's questions, um, never mind the technical issues that may or may, may not be happening in certain homes. So when I think about student-centered learning and what we're learning from this experience, it only highlights what we know to be true, which is that different learners thrive in different settings and how can we provide those settings when we're back in the building with the same range of experiences that our students are are having now. Obviously, we don't want the kids who are struggling at home to struggle in school, but if we're able to give the students who are, are ready to do work more independently and have um, touch points with teachers as opposed to teacher-directed learning, that will afford us opportunities to spend more time with the students who need more supports and sort of more guardrails as they go through their own learning. Um, so I'm hoping that that's another gift that we get from this, that we're able to really look at the fact that students do learn differently and that this virtual learning is working for some. And for others, if we give those virtual learners who are feeling success, if we give them what they need, it will allow teachers to spend more energy and time being responsive to the learners who need more support in a way that doesn't always happen in traditional classrooms. I think that I was walking the other day, I guess I lied, right? There is something I'm gonna add. I was walking the other day in my neighborhood and I ran into someone who's a career educator and a career, a lifelong Johnston resident. And we were talking about early childhood education. And, you know, she mentioned that some people in our community may not really pay attention to the fact that education is important for me as a candidate because maybe they don't have children in our schools. And then our conversation led us to the fact that we both know that if our education system is strong, 
that is better for the community. It is better economically for property taxes. It is better for who moves into our district because they're attracted to our um, education system. So community really is greatly impacted by how successful their education system is, regardless of whether they have children in the school system or not. And I think that when our education system fails our students, that certainly is reflected in those students as they move on, get older, stay in the community, and the kind of jobs that they get, the kind of sort of level of quality of life and happiness that they have and what those things can lead to. Um, So we really have to be conscientious about what our education system looks like at the community level because it is reflected in so many other factors. And Johnson is small enough that we can see that. So I'm really hopeful that if elected, I will be able to bring some attention to the things that Johnson does well, certainly, but also to the needs that we have. Just because we're not Providence or Woonsocket, Pawtucket, Central Falls, Warwick, Cranston, the bigger cities, doesn't mean that we don't have needs and that we can't do better for our children. And that's what I hope will happen. Hi, my name is Raymond Steinmetz, and I'm a Teach Plus Senior Policy Fellow. I'm also a middle school math teacher. I'm going to be teaching at Del Susto Middle School in Providence next year. I'm going to be teaching eighth grade math. I've been involved with Teach Plus for about two years now. Um, It has really broadened my perspectives. Not only have I had the opportunity to meet key stakeholders like the ones that you heard on this podcast and other experts throughout the state, But I have also learned a lot from the fellows that I met through the program. Listening to a variety of perspectives has allowed me to see the problems presented in this podcast, that they affect everyone. They aren't just Providence or Urban Core problems. They affect all of Rhode Island and the teaching profession as well. I really think we need to work together as a state and the profession to solve these longstanding issues. The grass is not always greener on the other side. And we can no longer close the doors to our classrooms or communities and ignore these greater problems. I want to thank everybody who participated in this podcast. We recorded in April during the height of the pandemic, so I really appreciate everyone who took the time to be interviewed and shared their honest perspectives. Also, those of you who have taken the time to listen, I really appreciate it. Please tell others to listen, share on social media, and continue to educate yourself and get involved at the local level. I really believe that voting in a national election should not be your sole political action within our society. So get involved and reach out. You can reach me at blended underscore math on Twitter. You can email me at steinmer at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.